0: If you've got a Bible, get to uh, Galatians 6, that's where we're going to be today. Next Sunday, we finish up Life in Community, looking at 1 Peter 4. Next Sunday is going to be a family service, so if you are a parent of Sun Chasers kids, take note of that. And then in November, we start a new series, a four-part series, looking at four different minor prophets from the Old Testament. If you're tracking along in the Life in Community book, whether on your own or in community group, this week... The book looks at James 1, great passage, it's in the Living and Active Word. We uh, encourage you to continue to look at that. As we thought about this series, Galatians 6 was one passage that I felt like uh, we needed to talk about and that the Lord would use to strengthen His church. And so we're going to, as far as preaching, we are replacing James 1 with Galatians 6 for today, but I pray that James 1 is a blessing to your discussion in your community group. Today I want us to get a clearer picture on what it looks like to walk together in community, when a member of our community is is entangled or overwhelmed in sin, how we are to walk alongside them. And, And that vision revolves around two words, repentance and restoration. So what's repentance? It's a heart change that leads to a directional change. To repent means to change your perspective, to no longer disagree with the Lord, but agree with the Lord. Repentance is the posture that we take toward the Lord, not only at our conversion when we come to faith in Christ, but also for the rest of our lives as we follow Christ. Repentance is the ongoing posture for the believer. It's where faith begins. It's how it continues. John the Baptist said this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, meaning change your direction now, change your mind about who the Lord is now. The Messiah, the King is is here Get ready for Him. And so the New Testament church continues to to proclaim, repent for the kingdom of of heaven is at hand because Jesus Christ is coming again. And so prepare for Him now. Wouldn't it be great if each of us were just always quick to repent? That we always walked in the light? Wouldn't life in the family of God be a lot less messy if we never fell into sin or had any blind spots, and we're never prone to pursue the things of our flesh that still reside in our hearts. Wouldn't that be great? But we know that's not the case. We know it's not the reality. We see it in our own hearts. We see it in the hearts of our fellow siblings in the family of God. So how do we, the family of God, walk together in community? And how do we, the community of faith, respond when we see a fellow brother or sister overwhelmed in sin, trapped in by sin, entangled by it. When repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand is not the first response. How are we to pursue? What's our motivation in responding? What's the goal? What's the spirit, the tone that we are to have as we pursue them? How do we want the family of faith to pursue us when it's us who get our our feet caught in the snare of sin? For counsel on that, we'll go to Galatians 6. So verse 1 says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. This is addressed to brothers and sisters in the church. And Paul is talking about someone within the family of God that has been overtaken by sin. Their life has become entangled. And there are two people in this passage that are in danger two people or groups of people who the Lord is at work in. See, one unbiblical assumption we make when it comes to how we walk with those who are caught in sin is we think the Lord is only at work in that person. Like it's their issue, it's their sin, but we fail to see how the Lord desires and is at work in our own hearts and lives as we come alongside them. For instance, one area that my wife and I have counseled in is Couples who are married couples who are in crisis, whether it be um, external pressure coming in on them, the unfaithfulness of a spouse, the, the selfishness or lackadaisical attitude of a certain spouse or both of them, couples that are in crisis we've come alongside to offer friendship and counsel to. But you know when we do that, the Spirit of God is not only at work in that couple, but also in Heather and I. The Spirit is, is at using that time of counseling to, to not only warn them, but to warn us and give us this sober reminder of, hey, we're just a couple choices away from the path that they're on. Or that, that was the story that we walked through, and by the grace of God alone, we're on the other side of that, but we don't want to return to that. So it's not just, well, Lord, be at work in this couple's life, but also, Lord, be at work in our hearts. In our marriage, use this time of walking alongside another couple to encourage our own hearts in the faith and to drive us to a deeper dependence upon the Lord, to remind us that we are as in desperate need of God's grace as they are. So there are always two people or groups of people who the Lord is at work in when someone is overwhelmed in sin. It's not just them, but it's us, it's the family of God ultimately. And specifically in this passage, Paul is addressing the potential that when you see someone entangled in sin, one temptation you face is falling into temptation yourself. That we should not approach someone entangled in sin with a spiritually proud heart, but rather one that recognizes our own flesh is weak because Proverbs reminds us that pride goes before a fall. And so as we think about our response, when we see someone caught in sin, I believe there are four temptations that we face, none of which Scripture calls us to. The first temptation we face, instead of going to them in a spirit of love, we just ignore it and hope it goes away. So when we believe that lie, we, we uh, translate or paraphrase verse 1 to, to read incorrectly Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual should just be indifferent. Ignore the situation because it's none of your business. So Paul addresses that temptation in verse 2 when he writes, carry one another's burdens. Burdens would include sickness and suffering and, and strife, job loss, loss of a loved one, grief. But it also includes our struggle against sin and our own flesh. So you and I can't say and somehow justify it as a biblical response of, well, that's their sin. That's none of my business. If so, we are ignoring the command to carry one another's burdens. And we are ignoring our identity as a fellow brother or sister in the family of God, a family called to love one another. When we ignore, we are missing the opportunity to be the hands and feet of Christ and to reflect the fullness of His grace, the fullness of His truth toward one another and our own hearts. We are missing the opportunity to see the gospel transform lives, including our own. Some believers ignore because they take out of context or they misunderstand Jesus' words of, of, do not judge so that you won't be judged. But listening to that in context, Matthew 7, verses 1 through 5, Jesus says this, do not judge so that you won't be judged. For you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others, and you will be measured by the same measure you use. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your eye and look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye. Hypocrite. First, take the beam of wood out of your eye and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. So what is Jesus not saying in that passage? He's not saying that believers should avoid making moral evaluations or discernments or that we are not to judge or evaluate what is wrong, what is right, what is in line with the Word of God, what is contrary to the Word of God. Jesus is also not saying that as His people, we never tell someone they are wrong. Jesus, in the Gospels, tells plenty of people they were wrong. He also is instructing us not to avoid all hard conversations. So what is He saying in in those verses? What He's calling us to is to reject the attitude or the spirit of a Pharisee when we see someone overtaken by sin. The Pharisees were never ones to receive criticism themselves, so they would ignore the beam of wood in their own eye trying to remove the splinter or the speck in someone else's eye. Which, if you imagine that, trying to remove a speck in someone else's eye, how careful you must be, and then how difficult that would be if you had a beam of wood in your eye, what happens is you cause more damage in that person's life by not removing or recognizing that you have a beam in your own eye. D.A. Carson, a New Testament professor, said this regarding those verses. Jesus does insist that when they follow his instruction and make evaluations and judgments, they must do so without cheap criticism of others, a notoriously difficult requirement. There must be no condensation, no double standard, no sense of superiority, no patronizing sentimentality. Christians are never more than poor beggars telling other poor beggars where there is bread. This humble tone ought to characterize all Christian witness, he says. The next temptation we face when we see a brother or sister entangled is we excuse and justify the sin. So when you believe that lie, we would reword verse 1 to be brothers and sisters. If someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you should help them by finding a reason or excuse for their sin. So we say, well, you see how broken their marriage is. It's no wonder it led to this. Or do you realize how difficult their child was? It's no wonder this is the result. Or do you realize how stressful their job is? And it's no wonder that led to this. And so what happens is we join them in helping them shift the blame onto someone or something else. And I'm not trying to minimize difficult and devastating circumstances. Life has pain. My wife and I have walked through pain, whether it be individually or as a couple. So I'm not minimizing pain that we all experience in this life. At the same time, at the end of the day, you and I are accountable for our own actions and choices. At the end of this life, we can't point the finger and pretend that we are blameless. Blame shifting has been around since Genesis 3. Adam blames Eve. Eve blames the serpents. We also can't justify our lack of engagement because of our own sin. Well, I'm not perfect yet either, so, so I'm not really in a position where I can come alongside them who's entangled. And listen, you and I will always have remaining sin in our lives. We shouldn't ignore the beam of wood and be a Pharisee, but we should also not wait until we reach this mythical land called perfection. If so, we will never go. We will never pursue. Are you a brother or sister? If so, you are called to go. Go. And go in love. The next temptation we face when we see someone entangled is we gossip about it and we go sideways. So we reword verse 1 like this. Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual should tell other people who are also spiritual and ask them to pray and mutually share your sadness for the person's situation. Listen, gossiping about someone's life has never in the history of humanity led to someone's restoration. Restoration with the Lord or with the Lord's family. It's never led to the mending of someone's life, only further destruction. Matthew 18, 15, specifically says the first step in engaging someone caught in sin or who who we've been sinned against by is go directly to them, privately. The last temptation we as brothers and sisters face is, We condemn the sinner with a self righteous harshness. So we reword verse 1 to be, brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual should condemn them with a self righteous tone and assume that there is no hope for repentance. And that's the approach of the Pharisee that Jesus is calling out in Matthew 7. The Pharisees were prone to unwarranted, unjust, unmerciful statements, and as a result, their words brought condemnation, not a, a love-compelled conviction. See, in all these responses, we are doing what Paul is telling us not to do in verse 1, and that is fall into temptation. That's not just implying that we could fall into the same sin that, that the sibling is in, which is the real, which is a potential reality. It's also calling out that, that these sins or these unbiblical responses of justifying their sin or ignoring it or condemning them, That that in itself is also falling into sin that we are called to repent of and reject. So what's the goal of engaging someone who is overtaken in sin? Who doesn't seem to be living in a posture of repentance? According to that verse, the goal is restoration. The idea behind the original Greek is to put into order, to make things right, to restore into its former condition. It's used elsewhere in the New Testament as it relates to fishing nets. Fishing nets. That when you see someone with their nets torn, if you will, do your part in helping them mend their nets. The gospel of God's grace is a story of restoration where once we were wandering in strain and we've returned to the good shepherd because, because the good shepherd laid down his life for us. Where once there was separation between us and the Lord because of our sin. Now that sin has been covered by His blood and we've been joined. The gospel of Jesus tells us that what has gone wrong because of sin can be made right. What has been torn apart can be mended. And that gospel is what not only restores us to the Lord but also to one another. And we want that gospel to be central to life around here. Central to our family, central to the body of Christ. To live with the gospel in view helps us, reminds us that that restoration is central to what we're about and what we're praying for and what we're working toward. So who should be the ones who, when you see a believer in sin, engage them? Paul says those who are spiritual, meaning those who are led by the Spirit, Believers in Christ grieve and disobey the Spirit when we see fellow believers overtaken by sin and we don't engage. And we, when he says spiritual, Paul's not referring to the varsity team of believers. He's referring to everyday common brothers and sisters like you and I all in this room who have the Holy Spirit, who are being led by the Spirit, who are relying upon the Spirit, not their flesh, who are living in the context of a local faith family brothers and sisters, he says, so not just elders and pastors. Do elders and pastors get involved depending on the situation? Yes, of course, because they're a fellow brother alongside the family. Matthew 18 speaks to that. But confronting sin in the church, engaging with a fellow sibling in the family who has fallen into sin is what every believer who's a member of the church is called to. This is what we do as the church in life and community. We repent and we seek to restore. This is what your community group does. This is what the membership does. This is what your ministry team does. This is what we seek to practice as an elder team or as a staff. So how do we go about potentially, uh, or how do we go about navigating these potentially messy or muddy waters? With the spirit of gentleness is what Paul writes. Author and pastor John Stott said this verse suggests That gentleness is born of a sense of our own weakness and propensity to sin. If you're not convinced that you need grace, you will not go in a spirit of gentleness. Gentleness doesn't mean void of truth or absent of truth. It doesn't mean calling wrong, right? It doesn't mean avoiding the elephant in the room. It does mean those speaking the truth in love. It does mean that you'll be patient as you engage in it, that you'll be prayerful. It does mean that you'll be fully aware that you're as much in need of God's grace as, as they are. So why do we engage? Why do we move toward or confront a fellow sibling who has been overtaken by sin? Well, if you skip to verses 7 and 8 in Galatians 6, we read the answer. It says, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, he will also reap. Because the one who sows to his flesh will reap destruction from the flesh, but the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. A farmer reaps the same that he has sown. If he plants beans, he reaps beans. Corn, he reaps corn. In the same way, if we sow to the flesh, the flesh will increase in size and strength. Galatians 5. Paul lists several several examples of the flesh. Things like, Immorality, idolatry, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, drunkenness. If we're planting seeds in those areas of the flesh, if that's the pattern of our lives, we'll reap destruction. Paul gives a sobering warning in Galatians 5 that we won't inherit the kingdom of God when we are bowing down and worshiping the things of this earth. In the same way, thinking about the analogy of planting, what is sown also spreads. The apple seed doesn't just grow more apples, it grows more apples with more seeds. There's this exponential nature to what is sown. So, in practical terms, when it comes to sowing seeds of the flesh, it will impact others. Even if we think it's private and not hurting others or not seen or it's only over here, it is seen ultimately by the Lord, and it is affecting and hurting others. So what Paul's saying when you see someone overtaken by sin, is that it would be cruel to not pursue them. For if you loved them, you don't want them to reap destruction. You don't want the flesh to win. You want rather restoration to occur so that the seeds of the Spirit might grow and love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control might grow up in their life, which in the same way, in a God-glorifying way has a spreading effect, an exponential effect on those around them. We move toward those whose nets are torn because we not only only want that brother or sister to feel loved, but we we want them to experience transformation because we love them. We love one another. We love the Lord. We love the local church, the family of God that we are around. But what do we do if we continue to see a pattern of sin in someone's life? What if we're seeing this entanglement of sin only get worse and repentance not take place? In fact, it's almost the sense that their heart is hardening. Again, for that counsel, we don't want to rely upon our own wisdom. We want to open the Scriptures and allow the Scriptures to lead us, which Jesus addresses in Matthew 18. He gives us a pattern to follow as the family of God. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he won't listen, take one or two others with you so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he, d- if he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church. If he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let, it be like a gen- let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector to you. What that passage in Galatians 6 and 1 Corinthians 5 are all talking about is this idea of church discipline or what we call God's discipline through the church. And over the past few years as an elder team, we have worked on developing an extensive document to better teach on that subject. You can find it on our website. It's under who we are and then under beliefs, but I'd encourage you to read it this week. There's a lot of misunderstanding around why and how around that subject of God's discipline through the church. And as the New Testament church, we want to be shaped by the scriptures and we want to talk about that. So there's a, a document there to help articulate that, to help us get a better understanding of how we are called to live that out as covenant members of the church. So with each step, Jesus lays out in Matthew 18, the circle of brothers and sisters is expanding the role of shepherds and elders is escalating. And the goal of all of this is not condemnation or punishment, but warning that would lead to the goal of restoration. Restoration of the person toward the Lord and toward one another in the family. So why does the circle expand? Why does the role of leaders escalate? Well, one simple reason is because according to verses 7 and 8 in Galatians 6, the Lord is not mocked by sin. He is a holy and just God. And we want to see seeds of the Spirit sown and eternal life harvested, not seeds of the flesh sown and destruction reaped as a result. Our God's love is relentless. We worship a God who pursues the lost sheep, who rejoices when they return, who laid down His life while we were still sinners. So we are to reflect that same relentless love toward one another. Love for the Lord, love for the person entangled, love for the church, love for those yet to be reached with the gospel and the outward testimony of the local church is what compels us to pursue the spiritual restoration of a crosspoint covenant member overtaken by sin as an elder team and a staff we're currently reading Paul Tripp's latest book Lead it talks about 12 gospel principles that are to shape the leadership in the church and the community that it has with one another i highly highly recommend it to anyone he wrote this as it relates to the subject here in Galatians 6. He says, true biblical love doesn't just accept you, bless you with patience, and greet your failures with forgiveness. Along with all those things, it works to do everything it can, everything it can to protect you from the weaknesses of heart that make you susceptible to temptation, that make you and I susceptible to temptation. It does everything it can. Because that's what Christ-like love does. My wife, Heather, and I have been driving together for many years now. If you count dating, uh, coming up on 29 years of driving together, a lot of miles, the vast majority of that driving, when we are together, I'm behind the wheel and she is riding shotgun. I call it chivalry. Others might call it control. I call it chivalry. (laughs) So on vacations, she's my navigator when I need one. I don't want to listen to the voice of Google Maps. I want to listen to the voice of my wife. There have been times over those years of driving where Heather serves as my second set of eyes. Comedian Tim Hawkins calls his wife his little helper in the car. (laughs) If you haven't seen it, you should go see it. You should go on YouTube and look up Tim Hawkins' little helper (laughs) and you'll enjoy it. And I'm sure some of you wives, I know when I've ridden shotgun, I can be a little helper to my wife. So I'm sure some of you wives can relate. It goes back and forth. So as my second set of eyes, there are times when I'm backing up, I tend to back up into parking spots. My dad did it. I do it. I think I I sometimes, frankly, park better that way. And we're backing up and and just backing up nice and easy and (gasps) from the shotgun seat. All the oxygen leaves our car. We got to roll down the windows quick, get it in here. I clutch my heart in fear, thinking, well, here comes the middle-aged heart attack. What's going on? She thinks we hit something, or we're about ready to hit something. We're not even close. (laughs) She would tell you that sometimes her spatial awareness is not always good. As my navigator, she's laughing, by the way, in case you're wondering what my wife is thinking right now. As my navigator and second set of eyes, besides those heart-clutching moments, you know what she has done for me and, uh, and us as we have driven? Protected us from, 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 by not remaining silent. Protected us. It tends to happen more on vacation when we are on unfamiliar roads. For instance, we're cruising along on a highway making good time, <laughs> if you know what I mean. And she notices the cars are slowing up ahead, and I don't. I'm captivated by her beauty. And uh, so she says in a growing, slowing, 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 and it just kind of escalates a little bit. And uh, oh, gotcha. I I didn't see that. And sometimes I did see it, and I'm just choosing to decelerate, break a little bit closer to the action. But this summer, we were in a parking lot in Florida, and we were looking for this breakfast place. And so I'm trying to drive and also look up at at the signs on the storefront and figure out where this breakfast place is and I'm about ready to pull out within this parking lot and I don't see a car coming and she says, careful! Kept us from a collision. Kept us from inconvenience, for sure. I'll ask her in heavy traffic, hey, can you help check my blind spots over there, especially when the car is so jammed full of stuff that we can't see the back, can't see the back. Or even if I think I can see it, I ask her, hey, can you you help me out? Check over there. I joke about my little helper and her gasps, but you know what? I'm a better driver with her in the car. We make a good team. Sure, the pride in me doesn't want to think that. My pride gets irritated at the times when she has said something that I already know. (laughs) I already saw it. But my pride gets checked when she says something and I didn't see it at all. Protects us from further problems. I say, thank you. Thank you. You know what I don't want to do, don't want her to do when we are driving together and she sees a problem up ahead, for instance? I don't want her to ignore it, thinking, that isn't my business. I probably shouldn't say anything. No, she should say something because she's in the car with me. This is our situation, not just my situation. So she's on the hook. I want her to say something. I also don't want her to justify it and say, hey, we're, we're, we're in a hurry. Or did you see that guy back there? We're driving better than, than he is. No, I want her to say something. I also don't want her to get on her phone and post on social media about how her husband is ready to rear in somebody. And would you pray for him? <laughs> I just, he's just a terrible driver. I don't know. No, I want her just to say something to me. Put the phone down. I'm right here. I want her to talk to me. I also don't want her to scream at me, condemning me, telling me I'm an idiot. I do appreciate her gracious and her kind tone, even when she is looking for a chicken break over there. Loved ones, my brothers and sisters, we need to love one another well enough to say, careful, careful. I sense you're drifting. You're getting entangled. Maybe you already see it, but at the risk of just step into an awkward moment. I'm going to say something because I love you. Careful. We need to recognize the weakness of our own flesh and intentionally ask and welcome and invite and ask other fellow br- brothers and sisters, hey, would you be the ones who call out careful in my life? Would you watch my way of life in Christ enough where, where you're willing to love me enough to tell me careful? And then we need to reject our pride And getting its little feathers ruffled when we may already be aware. And simply just say, thank you. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for stepping into that awkward moment. And my pride's not going to make it more awkward. My pride's just going to be checked. And I'm going to humbly say, thank you. Thank you for loving me. Because you know what? We'll navigate the road of faith better together than we would be isolated. It's how we're called to live in the family of God. Helping one another be that second set of eyes on the road of faith, if you will. Chris and Maddie, you want to come up? Listen to what Paul says in verses nine and ten in Galatians six. Then he says, "Let us not get tired of doing good, for we will reap at the proper time if we don't give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us work for the good of all, especially for those who belong to the household of faith." Church, one way we do good is to live out verse. One, and pursue, pursue the one entangled in sin because at the end of the day, we need others to do that for us because one day it could be us overtaken and we want others to love us enough to think about eternity in view, to love us enough to call out careful and I'm going to move toward you rather than away from you. Therefore, especially within the household of faith, as we have opportunity, let us do good to one another so that the seeds of the Spirit might might be sown and eternal life experienced, eternal life be reaped. Father, I pray that you would help us as your people to move toward one another in love. May we engage in relationship and In a spirit of humility and gentleness, may we speak the truth in love to one another. May we have a sober self-awareness that we are in need of God's grace each and every day of our lives. May we seek to walk in the light of your holiness and grace, laying aside the sin that can so easily entangle us. May we day by day grow to be more like you, Jesus, putting off the things of self and putting on the things that would glorify you. May our community with one another be marked by a humble repentance, a worshipful attitude before you. And may you cause the restoration, not only toward one another, but toward yourself, Lord. Mend the, the nets, mend the tearing in our lives. You're able and we trust you. And we pray this in your name. Amen. 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 7. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. In the blood of Christ, Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, And his word is not in us, my little children. I'm writing you these things that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. Praise God for our advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous one who is faithful to a thousand generations.